Scripture this evening is coming from Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 11. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 11. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. To pick you up and drop you off in the middle of Romans chapter 5 is like coming into a movie theater halfway through The Matrix or maybe like Lord of the Rings or some movie that has a deep story maybe like Shawshank Redemption and just drop you in in the middle of that and let you watch the rest of it. That might leave you uh, with the ability to enjoy some obvious highlights like maybe a, a good fight scene that you could be excited with some of the action or maybe one of those glances of love and you see two people connect but in that you really don't have any context to make any real sense of what's going on in the story. All you're really doing is going to annoy your neighbor by asking a bunch of questions. And so, um, coming into Romans chapter 5, like we are tonight, is similar to that. You see, at its core, Romans deals with the theological realities of our salvation in connection with our personal experience of that salvation. So there's heavy, heavy teachings of theology of how people come about being saved, and at the same time, Paul is masterfully weaving together the personal experience so you can know that you actually are saved. And so as many uh, scholars, theologians, teachers have said, um, the way that Paul really weaves those two together is what makes this work, this letter, breathtaking. And by far, uh, the letter to Rome is just uh, mind-boggling. It's a beautiful letter to beautiful trees to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we could do a whole lesson on that. But since this really isn't a preaching school or seminary, we just got to get down to business tonight with ourselves and really what this text has to do with, especially with what we're talking about. Uh, The passage that Lawrence read to you tonight is a small argument, a small argument that deals with the nobility and the generosity of our God. It's really just a logical progression through thought that is making an argument to himself and his readers about how noble God really is and how generous he really is in the fact that you and I are saved. And so here's what we need if we're dropping ourselves into Romans chapter 5, the second part of it especially, to get ourselves a little bit of context We've got to take not just one step back, but two steps back. So I need you to hit the backwards button or the the rewind for a little bit and go back with me, not just to the beginning of Romans, but take one farther step back all the way to Genesis. And we're not going to work Genesis all the way to Romans, but we'll 
skip a few steps in between. Go back to Genesis chapter 1 through 3. Uh, You can do that in your mind, or you can certainly turn your Bibles there. I want you to remember when heaven and earth, as it's told to us in the account in Genesis, were created. We see God creating heaven and earth and creating His people, and God and His people, Adam and Eve, enjoyed this uninterrupted relationship. There was beauty in it. It was marked by trust, pleasure, joy, intimate fellowship. There was peace and there was flourishing in relationship and there was flourishing even in the earth. That's what the Hebrew word shalom really means. When the word says shalom meaning peace, it doesn't mean just absence of difficulty or trouble, but shalom means the presence of things that are flourishing things that are doing well, things that are growing. And so when you walk into somebody's home and you see a husband and a wife that love each other dearly, and in that they come alive and they're themselves and they find their full potential, that's what shalom is, that's flourishing. You walk into a home where parents love their children well and speak life into their children. That's flourishing. And that's what they were experiencing when God created Heaven and earth in Genesis chapter 1 and in chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, as most of us know, this relationship experience had a crisis. It's fractured, broken. Due to Adam and Eve rebelling at its very core, they just rebelled against God. They transgressed. They went beyond. They left the life giving commands that God had gave to them, and they sought what we all at times do, this amplified or better life away from God. That's really what they were sold, was these commands that God had given were not tasks and burdens that were laying on their shoulders, but it was guardrails that led to life. And so what we all fall into, like Adam and Eve would fall into, is this belief that if I step outside of that, I'll not just have life like God is telling me I have life, but I'll have better life or amplified life or greater joy than just this joy that I'm experiencing with God. And so there we saw very, very details about how it all sort of fell apart. And there an eternal truth was learned that there is really no life without God. Because in Genesis chapter 3, there entered the world death because of transgression and sin. Genesis 3 gives us details about how this relationship between God and Adam and Eve changed. You see, before chapter 3, you see this beautiful picture of openness, open communication, open fellowship, walking hand in hand together, spending time together, communicating with each other. In fact, the Bible would even say that Adam and Eve stood completely naked and unashamed to be able to stand before God and each other completely open, completely unclothed. There was nothing to be ashamed of. And once they transgressed, once they stepped outside of the way that God had instructed them to live life and to enjoy life and to enjoy life with Him, there is one thing that happens. One thing shows up. And it manifests itself in two ways, but it's really just one thing. There was a belief that entered into the mind of Adam and Eve that started showing itself in different ways, but it's really just one belief. And that belief was we are no longer allowed or able to be in front of God. We are not allowed anymore 
to present ourselves and to be with and in front of God anymore. And that belief, we are not worthy of God, we're not allowed to be around God. You see this in Adam's answer to God's question when he said, where are you? Where are you? And Adam said, I heard your voice, I was afraid. And so we hid ourselves and God said to him this one question, who told you that? Who told you that? And he knew, he answered his own question by saying, did you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? But inside of both of their reactions was this one simple core. They believed they were no longer allowed to relate to God, to be with him. And so they tried to solve it one of two ways, the same way that you and I still today, human beings, try to solve this problem, this brokenness, this fracture among us that we cannot be in relationship with God anymore. We solve it the first way by doing things to hide behind, to show ourselves worthy of God. They sow fig leaves. Now this, all of a sudden their eyes are open, they know that they're naked, they don't feel like they can be in front of God anymore, and so they sew some fig leaves together, they cover the parts that they're not allowed to show, and they now feel like maybe I can stand in front of God. And we do the very same thing when we feel inadequate before God, sometimes instead of just trusting in Jesus Christ, we do work, we do service to hide behind our service and see maybe God will like this service enough that he'll let me just kind of stay here. And the other reaction was just complete escape, run. You see this showing up when Jesus enters the cosmos, when you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees who will stand in front of God with the shield of their works and say, I belong here. Then you have the tax collectors and sinners that just run. That's what we do with our sin when we feel like we can't be in front of God anymore. It's exactly what we do. We feel the weight of our sin, which is the shame that we cannot be in front of God anymore. And so either we hide by escape or we hide by earning it with our work. And neither is a remedy for a man's deepest need to be back in harmony with God. Neither of those will answer that problem. They might solve a moment of your shame if you're standing in front of God and you feel like you don't belong there anymore and you run and escape. For a moment you might feel a little bit of solution there. Or you might be able to stand in front of God and present some good works that you've done and that might satisfy this guilty, shame-filled conscience of yours. That might solve that for a moment, but it is not an eternal remedy for what's broken because of sin. It doesn't fix it. And that really, hit the button with me, go now to Romans chapter 1. Because what Paul is doing in Romans, and I believe this is what makes this the most beautiful theological piece of work we have, the gospel is obviously the most beautiful portrait of God, but what Paul does in Romans is something magnificent theologically. What Romans does for us is attempts to solve, to explain the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what makes that challenge so difficult is this. We've got several variables. One variable is we have a righteous God forgiving unrighteous people. That's a theological mess that we've got to deal with. And then we've got a race of people that have always been God's people and now a race of people that have not been God's people who are now included. And you've got to weave that together and make sense of that as well. And Paul does all four of those things. And he ties it together in the most complex book in our New Testament, I believe, Romans. He says this, chapter 1 really gives us our problem restated from Genesis chapter 3. He says in chapter 1, 
Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can read this with me. But I want you to listen carefully to the language that Paul uses in Romans chapter 1 and see if you can catch the way that he describes our problem. It's much more than just we've done a couple things wrong. In verse 18, he says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. You notice something similar in all the words that is used to describe the, really the problem of man there? You know, if we were taking a survey and asking, like, what's man's problem with God? It, and typically we'll come back to this reality that, yes, we have transgressed the ordinances, statutes, commandments of God. We have broken His rules. We have broken the law. We have, we have trampled on it. We've transgressed against that. But when Paul starts to bring it all together and starts to summarize it and starts to explain, like, in that transgression, what's the problem? He says, they knew God, but they didn't honor Him as God. They didn't honor Him in the way that that relationship needed to be honored. They had all the pieces of details that allowed them to know who God was. You see, in verse 20, says, namely, His divine power, who He was as God. And so everything is available for these people, for us, to know and relate to God. But because they chose not to honor, which means to give value to a relationship, they chose not to honor God. God had to let them go to no longer have a relationship. So that's our problem. Chapter 2, he deals with the result of that problem. Look in chapter 2, verse 9, he says this, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil for the Jew first and also for the Greek. There's the result of this problem. There will be tribulation and distress, punishment, wrath for every one who does evil. In chapter 3, he digs into the reach of this problem. Where he'll say in chapter 3, verse 9, that what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already been charged, both Jews and Greeks, under sin as it is written. There is none righteous, no, not one. Chapter 3, verse 23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But what chapter 3 introduces for us is the beginning of this solution when he says that there are none that are righteous. That's the problem. Well, the solution shows up at the end of the chapter in verse 21 of chapter 3. 
He says, now the righteousness of God has been made known apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified in His sight by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There's the very first word that Paul introduces as solution. And that fancy word is we have now been justified. And that word justified really gets down to the very beginning. This is great news because you and I, standing before the righteous judge God, are most certainly guilty before Him. Guilty of transgression, guilty of law. He has earned the right to have that because He is creator, we are created. And so we come in chapter 3 and he says, listen, God has made a way for justification to be had for his people. And he says that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith shows itself by trusting in the words and teachings of Jesus Christ and following him. Faith, trust conjoined together with obedience and what he has said demonstrates that we accept the offer that he has given and we follow him faithfully because of what he has done for us. This is great news. But what chapter 4 really has to do with, before we get into chapter 5, is that there were several that started to really doubt this concept. That still believed in their works and their ability to, to make things right with God or their DNA, that they were Jews by nature, so therefore they were right with God. And he says, look at Abraham's life. Before this thing that Moses brought ever happened, Abraham's life was a model of living by faith in what he called justification. So now we come to chapter 5. This incredible turning point in the book. You see, the very first verse in chapter 5 is, Therefore, when he finishes chapter 4 and says, Who was delivered up for our trespasses, Jesus Christ, and he was raised from the dead for our justification. In that moment when he raised from the dead, that was evidence that God accepted the sacrifice. You see, the death was for our sins, without a doubt, but the resurrection is the stamp of approval from heaven that God raising this Jesus back to life, God is saying, I accept it. I'm giving him life again. So the resurrection is the stamp of approval that God says, justified. <clears throat> and so Paul has some conclusions to make since you and I are justified. Now what I want you to do is read with me in chapter 5, 1 through 5. And what I want you to pull out of the text are some of the identifying markers, some of the things that are evidence that you and I can be people who are justified. What does it look like to be a person who is justified? So for four chapters, Paul has just hammered away at theological concepts about how justification takes place. And what he's going to do in chapter 5 is start to relate to you what that experience is like. And so what is amazing about this is you and I can take our lives and take chapter 5 and lay them on top of each other and say, does this line up? Does it make sense? Do I live like Romans chapter 5 says that a justified person should live? 
And if it doesn't make sense, then we've got some opportunity here for us to grow and to learn and to be taught by God. So let's read chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so there framed in, Paul has demonstrated the life and experience of a believer who understands what he's talking about in chapters 1 through 4. This is what's available to the believer. And he's going to reveal this in chapter 5, verses 6 through 11 that Lawrence read for us when he begins to make this argument when he says, listen, Christ died. And we would barely die for someone who's a good man. But Christ died for the ungodly. And three times in verse 9 and 10, three times, I don't think it's a vain repetition. He uses this word that transitions from justification to a new level or understanding of what he's really trying to progress us into. And that's reconciliation. To make a relationship that once was bad, now good. To take a relationship that was broken, not mendable, that is not happening, that is not peaceful, and say, this relationship is now restored. He's going to say that happens in what we're talking about here. You notice the identifying markers in verses 1-5? through A person experiences peace. Peace with God. A tranquil kind of peace. One that sort of transcends things. Peace with this divine being that is sometimes mysterious, that his mind is beyond ours, but we have peace with him. He says that we have grace, access to grace to stand in. You and I can stand on top of and live inside of grace, and we have access to that. Grace upon grace upon grace, as chapter 5 will say for us at the end of that, Even as sin abounds, grace can abound more. He says that we're a people who have deep and abiding joy. Deep joy. Joy that results in hope. Joy that is produced because we have this deep and abiding hope in the glory of God. He says not only that in verse 3, we're not just people who are believers and now everything is okay with us. He says in verse 3, not only that, but we're people that also rejoice in suffering. When hard times come, when challenges come, when difficulties come, it's not that we call for them or ask for them or beg for them, but when suffering comes to our place and we're here and we're sitting in suffering, we are also people who suffer well because we know that suffering is from a good God who's going to bring us to endurance. And endurance will produce character. And character is what will bring about real, everlasting hope that will not put us to shame. 
And lastly, he says that we have the fullness. God's love is poured into our hearts. These words go way beyond the relationship that exists between a judge and a defendant. Standing in the courtroom where the judge says, no longer guilty, the verdict's in, the gavel is pounded and you're innocent and you can go free. These words describe so much more than someone standing in a courtroom, knees knocking, knowing they're guilty, but the judge says, the penalty's been paid, go ahead and leave the courtroom. These type of words like peace and love and joy and hope and endurance and willingness to suffer to bring about character and patience. These types of words don't describe the person walking out of the courtroom saying, whew, I'm justified, I'm not guilty, this is great, and goes on his way, leaving the judge behind. These types of words speak to amplified justification, which is reconciliation. And what he's calling for us in verse 11 is this. Look at the phrase he says at the beginning of verse 11. More than that. If your gospel is limited to a brow wipe walking out of a courtroom, will you listen to the first three words of Paul in verse 11? More than that. If your experience in faith is showing up in a period of time so that you can have the experience of wiping the brow so that you can say, I guess I'm not guilty this week and I'll be back again next week so that I don't feel guilty anymore. Listen to verse 11. More than that. We also rejoice. I think there's a, there's a complete connection between more than that and rejoicing in Christianity. More than that and rejoicing in Christianity. Now, I'll be the first to tell you, um, I know this personally, that I don't always experience verses 1 through 5. Uh, in fact, the closer I draw near to God in my life, I can just share with you my experience with this passage and my own experience in walking with God as, as God has gently led me away from desiring maybe evil and sin that would be away from or irreligious from God. I still find myself fighting for and wrestling to have the qualities of relationship with God that he's mentioning in verses 1 through 5, like a tranquil peace and joy and love that is poured out in my heart and endurance and suffering and patience. I don't always experience those things. In fact, those things sometimes just come in flashes and they're great, but then I experience the opposite and I sort of feel myself fighting for those things. And I can only experience or share with you why this is true for me and perhaps it's true for you. I believe it goes all the way back to verse 1. All the way back to verse 1. Paul makes a conclusion statement here. After these first four chapters of digging deep into thought about God and salvation, he comes to chapter 5, verse 1, and he makes a conclusion that is really important for us to conclude with him. But you've got to do the work verses through chapter 4 to come to this conclusion. And so the question I would ask you is this, when you think about verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, is where does Paul tie the word justification? Picture for a moment the word justification being this big carved out of stone thing that is a great and uh, awesome treasure to be had. But you've got to grab hold of that thing. You've got to have it. 
And picture faith for a moment as the rope that ties onto justification that attaches you to that. Where does Paul take the rope of faith and tie his justification to? Where does he anchor that thing to? Where does he grab that rope and tie that knot so that justification is attached to something? What does he anchor that to? You see, Paul grabs justification in verse 1, and he grabs the rope of faith, and he ties them together, and then he goes and he grabs Jesus Christ. And he throws the rope around him, and he ties that knot as tight as as he can. And he says, justification by faith through Jesus Christ. Practically for me, let me help you with that. I sometimes will grab justification, my rope of faith, and tie that to my personal performance. Now, if you were to look at a line graph here, if I could put one up for you, you all know how much I love PowerPoint. So uh, imagine that. If I were to attach a line graph for you here, and justification was sort of traveling along with being anchored to my personal performance. Most of you, if you know me, will know that my graph will do this. Sometimes it will go for a while and it will go high and then I'll dip for a little bit and then maybe I'll plummet for a little while and come back up. And if I tie my justification with a rope of faith to my personal performance, what is my justification going to do? And if my justification does that journey, what's my peace with God going to do? Inseparable. They're inseparable. I think many of us can get stuck in the cycle of justification and never really get to verse 11 where he says more than that. Going up and down because we've taken justification and we've attached it to us in our performance. And so our relationship with God is not marked by peace, grace, hope, and joy, but stress, inadequacy, and shame. We struggle for endurance. We'll find patience be so hard to grab onto, mostly because I'm still attaching my justification to myself, and that's a heavy weight that I cannot carry. You see, Paul is declaring with certainty that our justification is attached to Jesus Christ and Him alone. And when that is a reality for me, I experience verses 1 through 5 and feel a hunger to pursue God even more. These beautiful qualities that are described. But I believe that's why Paul quickly shifts into verse 6, this argument. Immediately after he says these qualities, I believe that's why he shifts into this argument in verse 6. When he says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God demonstrated, confirmed, assured you, of His love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, since therefore we have now been justified by His blood. We shall be saved from Him, saved by Him from the wrath of God. And so Paul presents a reasoned and logical progression of thought that can help us stay grounded in the truth of where our justification has to be lynched and tied to. Right to the blood of Jesus Christ. And so reconciliation is the fullness of the purpose of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Colossians 1, he said that all the fullness of God was in Jesus Christ, that He was here reconciling the world to Himself. And that purpose, when you and I experience this, 
is something that is so easily to be shared. This reconciliation that my relationship with God is now made right and, I, and God and I can dwell together. And the beauty of this gospel is that it is participatory. That you and I can share in it. That we can partake in it. You see, Jesus is not some spiritual cupid that floats around and he gets his air out and he shoots people with justification and reconciliation apart from us. Paul would describe it this way. When he was basking in the transformative love of Jesus Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and he says, the love of Christ compels me. It leaves me no other choice. It's so awestruck by it that it transforms lives. He says this, that he was in, Jesus, God was in Christ reconciling the world and he has given to us, to us, the ministry of reconciliation. That, hey, friend, neighbor, coworker, classmate, my relationship with God is restored and yours can be too. He's given that to us. And so as Paul would plead with you, I would do as well in chapter 5, verse 11. He says, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You see, Paul knows something about justification to reconciliation. He knows that we can stop at justification and leave God behind. And that's why he cries out that we would have more than that and that we would not just have justification, but that we would receive reconciliation. I want to encourage you to receive that because when you receive that, you'll easily want to share that. If reconciliation, a right relationship with the very God that made you, that longs to dwell with you, that would send his son to die for you so that he could restore that relationship, so that he could reconcile and reach his hand across the table and say, I want to connect with you again. If that's not a reality that you have with peace with God and joy and hope and endurance, boy, that's something we want to help you with. Let us walk with you, help you, study with you, pray with you. And if you need to be born again, let us help you do that as well. Let's stand and sing.